It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the green light for the Hinkley Point nuclear power project and David Cameron's legacy as he walks away from frontline politics. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, Philip Stevens, our chief political commentator, and Jim Picard, the FT's chief political correspondent. Thank you all for joining. And now to the main news story this week, which is the Hinkley Point power station returning to one of the FT's favourite topics. After a pause over the summer, Theresa May's government has given it the green light. After much uncertainty, the huge new project in Somerset is going to be built. There have been some changes to the initial proposals, but it's still not quite clear what's going on and what went on in the government's rethink. So Jim Picard, straight from the corridors of power to see the announcement in the House of Commons. Can you tell us what's happened with Hinkley and what the government has changed since it had this pause over the summer. The first thing I'll put you up on, Seb, is this idea that it's going to be built. It's a very optimistic and positive view, but if you go back through the last 10 years, this was a project which was meant to be cooking our Christmas turkeys by 2017, and it's now eight years behind schedule. I remember writing about four years ago, I got the scoop that Centric had dropped out of the consortium to build the thing, and then they had the whole difficulty getting other foreign investors to come in, and then they had the problems with Arriva, the French nuclear company. They were meant to have 10%. They sort of collapsed and had to get rescued by EDF. So they've had all these problems and the message from EDF has always been it's going to be on track it's going to be fine and then that was why Theresa May appearing to put it under review two months ago was seen as such a nightmare by people close to the project because it already had this track record of being really delayed so what she's done today is she's resuscitated it and she's imposed conditions which are not a problem for either EDF or for their Chinese partner CGN. They've both put out a statement saying that they're delighted and it will go forward. And the changes that she's introduced are a little bit technical. But the first one is that if there's a change in ownership of the EDF 65% roughly share in Hinkley Point, the government can have a veto over that. It's not clear who the government's worried that EDF might sell it to. I mean, North Korea or something. It's not you know, If they're happy for the Chinese to take over the nuclear power in Britain and then it's not really clear who they're worried about but there's that on the one hand and then for future nuclear power stations the government will also take a kind of special share which again will allow it to control ownership changes in the future and at the same time they're going to have a look at the Enterprise Act of 2002 which governs mergers acquisitions in this country and I think they could be changing that to include critical infrastructure as one of the areas where you automatically get a call in to ministers if a merger takes place. The key thing in this, George, seems to be about China's influence. And we know that Theresa May's brain, Nick Timothy, who's the Joint Chief of Staff in Downing Street, has raised concerns before he started working in Downing Street about Chinese having a stake in British infrastructure. And everyone assumed this is why Theresa May was going to pause, even potentially stop the project. Now, as Jim says, it may never actually be built, say like a third runway at Heathrow. But the question is, has she got over her objections about Chinese involvement yet? Or has anything substantial changed? 
Well, you're right that Nick Timothy, before he became Theresa May's chief of staff inside Downing Street, wrote a column for the Conservative Home website where he said that there was a danger if China was controlling these nuclear power stations, they'd stick some technical backdoors into the projects and be able to turn the lights off, essentially, in times of international tension. Now, as Jim was saying, the government has introduced a series of security tests, golden shares and all the rest of it. Whether that is going to be enough to allay all the securocrat fears about China's influence, I'm not sure. I think that this decision has been taken on a number of different levels. There's obviously the energy question about keeping the lights on. This power station is supposed to provide 7% of our electricity, but a whole range of much bigger questions about our strategic position vis-a-vis the French key partners when it comes to negotiating Brexit and indeed the signals we send out to the world post-Brexit about being open to foreign investment. Absolutely. And I think the other way to see this as well is a key element of Theresa May's attempts to do things differently to her predecessor, David Cameron. As soon as she was out of the block, she was talking about putting workers on boards, which was this radical idea that even Vince Cable and Ed Miliband read Ed inverted commas rejected and at the same time slightly less left-wing policy of coming back with grammar schools this week so she sort of made her mark in political terms quite quickly with that Hinckley decision there's been a lot riding on it. The point George made in the piece the other day was that by taking ownership of it there was a risk that she would have ownership of it if it went wrong. Some Tory MPs are surprised she didn't just wave this through and say well if it does go wrong it's George Osborne's fault Because I think at the G20 there's a lot of watching for the theatrics of this because when Theresa May met Chinese President Xi about what that was going to mean. This golden era of relations between the UK and China, would that be risked by cancelling Hinkley Point? And it was quite hard to just see what was going on there, but it seems like Anglo-Chinese relations are going to be okay after all then. Well, I think so. And the, the meeting with President Xi in Hangzhou was quite interesting because the President was going out of his way to stress the golden era you mentioned, and he praised Britain for its excellent performance in the Olympic Games and all the rest. It was laying it on very thickly that this is an important relationship. And I think Theresa May recognises that. And I think she had to make the calculation about, yes, she's worried about the security implications of dealing with the Chinese. Who wouldn't be if you'd been Home Secretary for six years? But at the same time, we need Chinese money and we need to project to the world that we're taking this seriously. I think if we hadn't gone ahead with Hinkley Point, it would have dealt a very serious blow to our relationship with the Chinese. No doubt at all about that. And I think actually what was rather clever about this policy announcement this week is that she's given the impression that there are some new security conditions being attached to this deal. Maybe they'll be worth something, maybe worth a bit less. But nevertheless, she's done just enough to keep the Chinese in the project and to keep the Chinese interested in the UK as a destination for investment. Absolutely. And she always knew that there was this danger that we could have been put in the deep freeze in terms of Sino-UK diplomatic relations. There's that great story about the Norwegian ambassador a few years ago where Norway annoyed China. And he said, well, I ended up with no one talking to me at all and spent all my time playing tennis. But they sort of took a pragmatic approach. And William Hague was fond of telling people in the Foreign Office that somebody or other is always in the doghouse with China somewhere around the world at any point in time. And so they cracked on. But going back to George's point about these future changes for critical infrastructure and whether they really will make a massive difference. The point that Barry Gardner, who's Labour's energy spokesman, made in the House of Commons during Greg Clark's statement is that if you add critical infrastructure to the three things which currently automatically mean that deals can be called in by ministers, they're currently national security, media plurality and also financial stability. Barry Gardner was making the point that 
if you're building nuclear power stations, there's already a security element there anyway. So couldn't you already call them in under the national security category? So that's a bit techie, but that's the reason why he was claiming that this is a, a bit sort of flim-flam. Critics of Hinkley Point, like the FTs and Nick Butler and many others, have said that the cost of the energy is extraordinarily high. And I know that if Hinkley Point had fallen through, this could have had huge implications for EDF's financial structure. Do you think it was really necessary, George, to build this to keep the lights on? Or could Theresa May have found another formula another mix of energy that would have still kept the national grid going without Hinkley Point. Well, certainly there are critics of the policy who say that capacity for energy storage is increasing, that um, wind power and solar power is becoming cheaper. But don't forget, this whole Hinkley Point power station was poured over extensively in David Cameron's administration. The Treasury had big concerns about the unit price we were paying for the electricity at Hinkley Point, but in the end said it was worthwhile. And I suppose the question is, if we were paying miles over the odds for electricity produced by Hinkley Point, why is it the French government and the board of EDF are so anxious about pressing ahead with this? You could argue, actually, that we've got the price about right, given the fact that EDF are not sure the project is viable, even as it is. The main reason they want the nuclear power station built at Hinkley and everywhere else is, firstly, you've got to remember that existing nuclear power stations provide something like 20-30% of British energy, but they're going to be wound down by the end of the 2020s. By 2030, they'll all be gone. We're also phasing out all our coal-fired power stations as part of our attempt to hit climate change and targets. So there's a gaping and there's been a huge amount of renewable power created through new offshore wind, onshore wind, solar. But the problem with it is intermittency because the wind doesn't always blow. The sun certainly doesn't always shine in the UK. And the one thing that they see in nuclear power is it can provide backup generation for when these renewable sources of power don't produce any. And yes, the price is high compared to the price of power at the moment. People behind the scheme say we don't know what the price of energy will be in 35 years' time. And it's difficult for them that the collapse in the price of oil in the last 18 months has rendered Hinkley Point even more expensive comparative to the current price of energy. But we don't know where a barrel of oil is going to be in a year, five years, let alone 35 years. And that is the case that EDF is going to make and on this. diversity of supply is the key. Yeah. And going back to a point earlier about Theresa May's balancing act, because the Prime Minister had a bit of a bumpy time lately. She began in a very good situation. Everyone was very impressed with what she'd done, which was not a lot, actually, because it was the summer and everyone had gone away and she'd mostly been walking up Swiss mountains. But then she came back with this big new education policy, George, where she was talking about, if not reintroducing grammar schools, increasing their mix in the education formula, shall we say. So maybe opening 20, 25. And that's sort of grown to allow selective education to make a really big comeback and as we saw PMQs this week it's made her a little bit vulnerable for attack. Yes it reminds me a little bit of Gordon Brown's first few months as Prime Minister just before I started as political editor funnily enough and if you remember that first glorious summer he was walking on water he was dealing heroically with these natural catastrophes like blue tongue and other obscure animal diseases and then Reality soon kicked in in the autumn. Now, I don't think Theresa May's in that territory at all, and I think she has made a pretty solid start as Prime Minister. But I think you're right. If we've watched Prime Minister's Question Time, it was the first time that I can remember that Jeremy Corbyn was actually landing blows on Theresa May. And this was on the grammar school question. It was partly helped by the fact that the Labour Party is united in opposition to grammar schools. But she didn't seem to have answers to even some of the more rudimentary questions on this policy that Jeremy Corbyn was raising. And I think the interesting thing about grammar school as a policy issue is it's her first big domestic political battle, and she's going into battle armed with very little or evidence, or evidence <laughs> to suggest that this policy will actually improve social mobility, which is ostensibly is what this policy is about. But I think on the macro political front, let's not forget that Gordon Brown, at that point where he fluffed calling an early general election, 
he was kind of at the end game of New Labour. They'd been in power for 11 years. They seemed a bit exhausted. They'd kind of run out of ideas. They were all fighting each other. And he was faced with this relatively young, dynamic challenger from the Conservative Party. When the public was starting to give the Tory party a chance, they were certainly listening to them after years and years out of power. And Theresa May, by contrast, has inherited an opposition party which is literally, well, no, not literally, metaphorically, in civil war. They're at each other's throats. They're briefing against each other all the time. We saw the Jeremy Corbyn coup a couple of months ago where nearly all of them told him he was useless, but he's dug in and he's about to come back in a week as the leader. And May, I'm sure, is is pretty pleased about that. I think that's right. I think Jim's correct. The comparison with Gordon Brown is a bit flaky, really. And uh, I was speaking to Oliver Letwin, David Cameron's former policy chief um, this week, who said that basically she's extremely lucky with her opposition and she can do whatever she likes. It was extraordinary to watch that, though, Jim, as a keen follower of Labour things, that on the issue of grammar schools, you know, Owen Smith is broadly behind Hinkley Point. Um, but grammars is one issue where they've united the whole party in opposition to Theresa May. And I think it's taken Theresa May to unite the Labour Party and not Jeremy Corbyn on the leader, which was an extraordinary thing to watch. Yeah, and interestingly, I was down at the Trades Union Congress in Brighton between Sunday and Monday, and I got chatting for a while in the lanes, the pretty lanes, with one of Corbyn's main advisors, talked for quite a while, and he was sounding quite optimistic about the fact that grammar schools was this example of where rebel MPs hate grammar schools more than they hate Jeremy Corbyn, and it's a reminder that the hard left and the soft left do actually have certain things in common. And this guy, can't name him, but he was quite optimistic that in the coming months, nine out of ten issues, they will be on the same page because there probably won't be another Syria vote. Trident seems to have come and gone. So unless they get something like that, which absolutely polarises the two sides, they might be able to create the semblance of unity, but we all know it won't be actual unity. This week marked the end of David Cameron's frontline political career. On Monday, the former Prime Minister announced that he was standing down as the MP for Whitney in Oxfordshire with immediate effect. He'd previously promised that he wouldn't do this just after the EU referendum result. And then on Wednesday, the Foreign Affairs Select Committee released its report into his Libya intervention in 2011, and it was scathing about the former Prime Minister's style of government. George Parker, it's a bit of an inglorious downfall for David Cameron to think that May last year he won an unexpected majority. He was the saviour of the Tory party, the man who brought it into the 21st century, modernised it, and now his legacy is in tatters. Yeah, I mean, that's true. He was the first uh, Tory prime minister to secure an outright majority since 1992. The political field was clear. The Labour Party was falling apart. And, uh, of course, Europe, as with many other former prime ministers, brought him down. But as you say, it's been an inglorious period since he left Downing Street in July. His um, former acolytes have been purged from the cabinet. The Libya reporters, you say, this week poured scorn on his foreign policy. We had the unravelling of his decision to appoint Rona Fairhead as chairman of the BBC board, which Theresa May regarded as being a completely cosy deal stitched up behind closed doors. That's been unravelled. And the grammar school policy, of course, this week. So all in all, it's been a pretty grim week for the prime minister. Philip, Former Prime Minister, I should say. Indeed, the BBC made that mistake as well. Um, Philip, I was talking to someone who was very close to David Cameron when he was in government and we were discussing Cameron's legacy and this person said to me, well, what legacy really? And certainly from his time in government, it's quite hard to say what it's going to be. But I think essentially all people remember him for is Brexit. Yes, I think that's so. In other respects, um, Cameron's premiership has been 
I think, all show and very little substance. Had it not been for Brexit, I think history's judgment might have been cruel in a rather different way, but it probably would have judged him as one of the footnote prime ministers in history. As it is, Mr Cameron himself warned many times that leaving the EU would be a catastrophic decision for Britain. Well, he promised the referendum and delivered the referendum that in turn delivered that catastrophic decision. I think running away from it now after promising as he left Downing Street at least to stick it out in Parliament and represent his constituents for another three years um, really says something about the character of the man. I was personally quite disappointed in this decision, George. I think one of the things that you could always respect about David Cameron was his public duty. He always felt that he was serving the country and even if you didn't agree or he got it wrong, as Philip said, he often did, you always felt he was doing it for the right reasons. And I think he also helped promote the role of backbench MP he's in Parliament, so you could see how he could build himself into that elder statesman. And then he just walked away from it after a few months deciding, well, actually, it's going to be too much hassle. And I think the grammar schools and all those other policy decisions coming from Theresa May that will tarnish the camera legs, he just couldn't hack it. Yeah, I think it is disappointing. And I think he's probably surprised himself that he's made this decision because throughout his time as Premiership, he rather despised the way that Tony Blair stopped being Prime Minister and then walked away from Parliament immediately saw that was disrespectful to his constituents and to parliament and I think really what happened was that David Cameron reflected over the summer I think he realized that Theresa May was actually forming a completely different government and whatever he said would be seen as backseat driving and critical I think that was a problem for him and I think the other thing the truth is that he saw commercial opportunities opening up for him and the possibility of making a lot of money from making speeches internationally he's planning to write his memoirs and he probably just thought over the summer look rather than hanging around for another three or four years being seen as a backseat driver and a persistent critic of Theresa May, I might as well just turn a page and get on with it. But I don't think it's particularly edifying, I agree. I think sad to say that we're losing the tradition that prime ministers and other holders of high off have a public duty even when they leave those public offices. I think we saw with Tony Blair, who rushed off to all sorts of dubious money-making enterprises with rather um, dubious foreign despots. And now I'm not sure what David Cameron intends to do precisely, but there's no respect for the dignity of the office. I think Gordon Brown is something of an exception in this, but we're perhaps reaching a moment when people like Cameron and Blair think being prime minister is something to put on your CV as a way of making money later. Yes, but having broken his promise not to leave Parliament immediately and not to do what Tony Blair did, David Cameron's supporters are now saying that he won't follow the Tony Blair model for a political afterlife, that he envisages being more like John Major, sort of making a few strategic speeches and some very low-profile directorships. We'll see whether... Actually, those words are on it as well. I think Philip's point about the public service role of politicians is very interesting because somebody pointed out to me that Ken Clark became an MP when David Cameron was three and he will be an MP still in 2020 when he retires and David Cameron has walked off into the sunset. And I think it's getting more and more difficult because David Cameron's career was very rapid. He came into Parliament in 2001, he was party leader by 2005, and then gone by 2016. So it's a sort of 15, 16 year, whereas the Ken Clark approach where you go in, you spend... 10 years, if not longer, on the back benches, then work your way up. Seems to be falling away, side. People become more impatient, do you think, Philip? 
Well, I think they do become impatient, but it's a question of character. Probably there still are people in Parliament who think they have a contribution to make and can serve their constituents, not just in the highest offices, but as backbench MPs, sometimes chairing committees. I think David Cameron wouldn't have had any problem being a backbench MP as far as Theresa May is concerned, because he could have restricted his interventions to big issues, perhaps on international affairs or other non-controversial things. And I think every prime minister has to expect his successor, as it were, to make his or her own mark by clearing out some of the old policies. The unfortunate thing that also happened, as I mentioned, George, was the Libya report. And this was the Foreign Affairs Select Committee's investigation into the Western intervention in Libya in 2011, in particular David Cameron's report. And it was pretty bad. It was not quite on the scale of the Chilcot report into the Iraq war, but I don't think many things are. And it essentially said that David Cameron had ignored advice, the intelligence was poor, there was no planning afterwards. So a lot of echoes to what Tony Blair did and David Cameron still defends it, but it looks pretty hard to defend the purpose for going in there and basically accused him for letting to the growth of ISIS. Well, of course, it was briefly one of David Cameron's vaunted foreign policy successes, the humanitarian intervention to save the populace of Benghazi. But you're right, the report was damning and it's another blow to his reputation. I think the only thing you would say, and I think Peter Ricketts, who was the national security advisor at the time, made the point that we intervened in Libya and it was a disaster. We didn't intervene in Syria and it was a disaster. The fact is, whatever you do, it may be a disaster. I think there are two interesting things to say about this report. The first is that the Chilcot report said, look, you've got to have proper government process before making such decisions and was very critical of Tony Blair's sofa style of government. Well, here's an example where you had all that process. And it still didn't And they still made the mistake. So process doesn't solve things. The second thing to be said about it is partly to George's point that there aren't any easy answers in such interventions. But this is the sort of style that Theresa May really didn't like when she was Home Secretary. This is the boys around the National Security Council, as she used to see it, playing war games. And the real problem was the consequences weren't thought through. And that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com.
the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.